welcome to season three of Overcoming Child Sexual Abuse. In this season, we're going to focus on connection. Connection to ourselves, to our higher power, to those in our lives, to our loved ones, and to our pain that remains often stuck, but that is waiting for us to connect with it in order to release it. So we can keep healing, growing, and stepping into our most peaceful, meaningful, and happy lives that we're each here to live. Today we're joined by Linda Curran. Linda is a trauma specialist, clinician, best-selling author, film producer, and a sought-after national trainer on trauma. When I read Linda's book, 101 Trauma-Informed Interventions, I knew I needed to introduce Linda to you all because she brings together so many different tools for healing and trauma recovery that we can learn about and try out in our own time and our own space and see which ones fit and which ones might be for another time. Now, 101 interventions might sound overwhelming, but it's actually a world of possibilities for us. And this is what this podcast is all about, enabling each of us to find new ways to overcome the impact of child sexual abuse in our daily adult lives, step by step, day by day. Linda has trained thousands of mental health clinicians on trauma treatment across the country and provides clients an integrative approach to trauma through her practice, Integrative Trauma Treatment, LLC. Linda treats simple and complex PTSD in adolescent and adult populations, including clients experiencing eating disorders, sexual trauma, self-injury, and attachment-related trauma. Linda is an international speaker on the treatment of trauma and has developed, produced, and presents multimedia workshops for clinicians and clients. Linda's multimedia projects include a four-part video program as part of the Master Clinician series, including Trauma Treatment, Psychotherapy for the 21st Century, Power Therapies, EMDR and Beyond, EMDR Step-by-Step, Treating Complex Trauma Beyond Competency, and Addiction, Trauma, and Adverse Childhood Experiences. Linda constantly advocates for accessible and integrative trauma treatment for all of those affected by trauma. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so glad for you to be here today because one of the greatest aims and inspirations for this podcast was to provide new knowledge on overcoming trauma from childhood sexual abuse, but more than that, to find and share new tools and practices that adult survivors of child sexual abuse can try and experiment with either on our own or with a practitioner. And when I came across your work and in particular your book, 101 Trauma-Informed Interventions, Activities, Exercises and Assignments to Move the Client and Therapy Forward, I knew that I had to have you as a guest because you have such a comprehensive set of tools and practices that are almost overwhelming, but provide us with the opportunity to know more and to choose tools and practices that we feel might fit us well and meet us where we are to help us move forward. So again, I'm so grateful that you're here 
with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I just want to say I didn't mean to make it overwhelming, but I define I'm I'm a trauma therapist. So as a trauma therapist, one thing that you have to know is that, you know, something that might be triggering for me might be helpful for you and might might um be may you know may do nothing for the next person you know so you have to have a lot of tools and, and you know you have to have a lot of tools to be able to offer to clients and that's why I put them all out there I don't think there I don't think everything's for everybody yeah and that's the thing and, and again that's part of what I'm really looking forward to talking to today because it can feel overwhelming and sometimes we don't know where to start because we hear about so many different types of therapies. And especially today, when it's difficult to access a therapist, the question becomes, how can we tiptoe, if you will, into some of these practices on our own sometimes? And if it is on our own, what support can we get as we go through some of these practices? Because invariably, they will prompt and trigger some things that one way or another we need to be supported through. So... I'm really looking forward to going through all of these various tools with you, or some of them because there there are so many, so that the listeners can get some idea of what might be right for them to try at this point in time. So tell us about your story that led you to this work. Well, (laughs) I think it's like every other wounded healer there is. Um, I had a shit show for a childhood. And um, if you need therapy more than three days a week, you should become a therapist. So I became a therapist. Um, I became a I became a therapist, and I would have been a terrible therapist if I had not gone through. I went to after I um, went to grad school. I went to a Gestalt Therapy Institute, and Gestalt Therapy for me it 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 was just probably I mean I want to say life saving because I would have lived. I just would have been miserable, right? Um, I think the 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 part about gestalt therapy and childhood sexual abuse or childhood trauma in general is that basically it is an embodied here and now, um, I want to say body-focused, awareness-based, I-thou relationship, which means as a therapist, as a gestalt therapist, I tried to take the power differential down as much as possible. For me, the only way that I felt safe in any kind of therapy was that the people that were doing the therapy or the people that were running the groups, the people that were, you know, the faculty there, they were all willing to look at their own stuff. You know, and if I had a, you know, if I had to say something, it was okay to say, um, this wasn't okay with me. And anybody that has had childhood trauma, that's not been, that's, that that was a very a corrective of the correctives. You know, that was a corrective experience for me. So I think that... There's a, uh, I would say it's a problem because we have a problem in the fact that people think that everybody needs therapy. And I think that's a mistake because people have healed from trauma for millennia, you know, and there, there were no offices where you, you know, had a call to make a 50 minute appointment. I think the problem with early childhood trauma is trust. So we don't, we're not good at uh, picking people to trust because we generally pick people that, you know, we kind of recreate these intimate relationships we had when we were young and that weren't so good, right? So I think that if you find somebody that can listen to you, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to tell your whole story. I mean, many people that like telling, telling your story for somebody may be, um, 
as healing as could be. And for somebody else, it might set them back, you know, six, seven, six, seven years. So I think that it's people should know that there is no uh, demand that they talk about anything to anybody, right? The thing about early childhood trauma is that it lives in our body. Now, we talk about all trauma living in your body. Nothing lives in your body. It lives in, in part of the brain that represents the body. But what happens is if you have childhood trauma, as your brain's developing, it's developing around that. It's developing around lack of trust. It's developing around uh, fearfulness. It's developing around um, whether it be, you know, trying to usually when people who have sexual have childhood sexual abuse, it's not always. Please don't hear anything I say as always, but a lot of times um, they had they did not have a protective parent. The other parent was not protective of them, didn't know, or what happens. The the attachment figure wasn't there, and if the attachment figure isn't there, it really sets the child up right for for you know to be perpetrated upon right so i think that we we come in we come into therapy very distrustful of relationships whether we have you know i said i was you know more avoidant right deactivating strategy where there's some people who and it's you know we all come by ours honestly where other people have very anxious attachment right who like you know when they they kind of get addicted to whoever they're with at the time um and then there's other folks who've had a um, trauma early and often and what they have is really like just disorganized there is no real organized strategy of being in intimate relationships you know so it's kind of like a whole lot of arousal and not a lot of strategies you know so do everything you can and try as hard as you can, but it generally doesn't work because the problem was, you know, there there wasn't a trustworthy adult, you know, when we were young, there wasn't somebody that we could go to and say, this is happening. And, or we went and we were either ignored or told that's, you know, it's not true or don't say anything, whatever happened, you know, whatever it is for whomever. If you want to talk to somebody about it, you have to be careful with that because you don't know how it's going to land. I mean, somebody, the numbers that we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, if it's one in three child, one in three for females, which those are kind of the stats I read. So one in four is for, I think is an average, right? But if it's one in three for girls, I mean, you may be triggering the ne- you know the person you're trying to talk to who hasn't told you or isn't ready to disclose that it happened to them. So you want to find out you know you want to know who you're talking to. You want to be you want to set it up at a time where the person is not going to be otherwise occupied, where they're not going to be um, pulled away, and you want to you know you want to set it up in a way where it's like I, I would like to talk to you about something and see how that lands, and then you can you know go from there. Um, the other thing is there are therapists. There's not a lot of people that have any spaces opened in their practice. But that's why I really do believe that we, you know, these, like if we do groups or peers, um, some peer stuff, maybe some psychoeducation, it's really just education about things that you missed because, because of early childhood trauma, you know? So like what I'm, what I'm talking about, like emotion regulation, like maybe we don't know how to regulate our affect. Maybe we don't know how to recognize emotions. You know, you can't regulate something you can't recognize. Um, can we regulate our own physiology? Can we bring our arousal levels down? Do we have skills to do that? And, you know, are we able to have relationships where we're, as Marshall Lenahan calls it, interpersonally effective, right? Where you can, you know what your needs are, you're able to put them out into the environment knowing that sometimes they're not going to get met, you know, and you can tolerate that amount of distress. 
So those, I mean, those are all skills that if you're thinking of processing trauma memories, right? So if you have a few discrete memories of childhood sexual abuse and you wanted to process them so they don't play themselves out in your body as they continue to do, there's a um, EMDR, there's um, psychodrama, there's brain spotting. There's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different trauma processing modalities, but you can't make use of them until you have those skills to stay stable. It doesn't mean you look stable. Nobody has to look stable. It means that, you know, if you had, you've practiced, you've learned and you've practiced these skills, right? They're called life skills, recovery skills, rehab skills, but they're just skills that, you know, you would order, if you had an optimal uh, attachment relationship, you would have gotten them implicitly. Nobody's really teaching them, right? It's like when you have, a, if you have an infant in the and the infant screams, you go in as a mother, you don't go in, oh, it's okay, baby, you okay. You go, oh, what's the matter? You go high up in affect, then you come down in affect, and that's how a child learns to regulate their affect. The problem with a lot of people who have had early childhood sexual abuse is they've had other trauma too, and that's pretty much what they've had, right? So they have a lot more work in what we call phase one, because if you're working with complex trauma, the first phase is really, you know, safety and stabilization, right? So you're you're building a rapport, usually with, the, you know, with, with a therapist, usually, right? So you're building rapport and the, the client's learning skills and practicing those skills, you know, in life. And once they have the skills, um, you know, the second phase is processing trauma memories. And really, it's, it's, quite easy. I'm not saying it's easy to go through the memories. I'm saying it's it's quite easy, very effective and it 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 goes by as efficiently as it as as it could. If you don't do phase well one, if you don't have those skills, phase two is awful. Phase two phase two just means you're going to get worse or be traumatized, you know. So when if if anybody is interested in what those skills are, I mean on I mean I'm sure you have them too, but they're on um, trauma one oh one is my website, all of that stuff is up there for free. The problem is if you have somebody who you know it doesn't hasn't developed self or the self is developed around mistrust, right? You, t- you send somebody for self-help, there's no such thing. They have to be taught interpersonally. So, I mean, some of it is whether you find a friend that you can practice these skills with, you know, or you um, find a mentor of sorts or a therapist, you know. But again, let me let me say about therapists, if you don't find one that's a good fit for you, don't go to one. I mean, it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. And if somebody think you know, if, if somebody is making you feel worse, right? question that. You know, we're not all great therapists, you know, and a lot, we all have our own shit, you know, and I don't mean that everybody's, you know, every everybody in the field has, you know, is um, psychotic or, you know, um, neurotic, whatever. That's not what I mean. What I mean is everybody's not a great therapist. And so if you're, if, if even if there is a great therapist, they may not, may not be a great therapist for you. So ordinarily, what I'd say is continue to shop around, you know, I mean, I hate the word consumer, but we are consuming services, right? So if this, you know, if you don't have any idea what a therapist is supposed to do, you just assume this is right. Well, a lot of times it isn't right. So, you know, I think there's a, you know, there's a regulatory board that, you know, that, that, Make sure that you know if you if you are being licensed under that board, they they have an ability. You can complain if you're a, if you're a client. You can complain, and you ought to complain if you know if you are not getting your needs met. You ought to complain. Um, there's a whole list up on on Trauma 101 too about that advice for people looking for a therapist, and it's a little harder now because we're stretched real thin. But again, take take what's helpful. 
because there's a lot of stuff up on my website. There's tons of other websites too. As a matter of fact, I have one called Must Visit websites on the on my website. So if that you know if people are interested in where resources are, there's plenty of resources. What's not what what's not available are actually like flesh and blood, you know, warm warm bodies that you know are are available to have you come in. Right. And that's the balance, isn't it? Because while we're waiting for the therapist to become available or the right therapist also for us to connect with, there's the desire for many of us to, to start somewhere. Um, you know, and especially when we're having those times that are especially hard to find something that we can work through. And there's great telephone services now as well but again people may not be ready for that or want to step into this by experimenting if you will with some different approaches and so kind of going back to the different approaches and processes that you use from EMDR to EFT and CBT and DBT and mindfulness and sensory motor psychotherapy. There's so many names and I think often our eyes kind of glaze over. Where do you suggest people start? Again, and your website has a lot of processes and worksheets and resources to direct us to, but can you give us a sense? So when we, when we see MDR, or EFT, or CBT, or any of these, how can you direct listeners to stepping into some of those? And what are they? What are some of the most common, you know, even though there's no one size fits all, but there are processes I'm sure that you find help many people. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where there's processes that really need people to have done a lot of work first and really are best handled with a therapist. So can you give us a sense of what are some of those processes that are easier for one to experiment with, you know, on our own? Well, my favorite one, and I actually have two of them. So my favorite one is guided imagery. And Belrose and Apristec has has the voice that I absolutely love. It's a little bit of a deeper voice and she talks slow. Um, you don't really need to like Belrose's voice, but Belrose does every guided imagery from improve your golf game to complex PTSD, right? So she is, she was, she's a, a trauma therapist as well. Um, I love, I think it's called Healing, Healing Journeys is the name of hers, uh, the name of her website. But for me, that's probably the easiest place to start because all you have to do is listen, you know, and she'll talk, you know, when she, when she, when she teaches, what she teaches is, you know, there's some people that'll not, that'll never step foot in a therapist office, right? Because whatever the stigma or whatever, but everybody can use that. Everybody can use one of these pack, pack and plays or just use it as, you know, like with um, earbuds. And they're usually about 20 minutes long. Um, one of the things that I always did when as a therapist was I would read, you know, I would take a guided imagery script and I would read it into somebody's phone or I would put, you know, put music behind it, whatever you can do that for. I mean, it's easy to do now. It used to be a little bit more difficult, right? But you could read it onto your phone, put music that you like behind it. Um, and like just be either be comfortable, there's a comfortable place, protective figure, um, comfortable place, protective figure, nurturing figure, and, you know, a wise self. I always think like, you know, you maybe get like a handful of resources and, you know, 20 minutes, they said 20 minutes a day, maybe five days a week for, I think they said six, for six weeks and people's um, symptoms really decrease, I, I mean, quite dramatically 
just from this, you know, this listening exercise. So I like that guided imagery. And if you think about where trauma is housed, it's housed in the right hemisphere and imagery goes right to the right hemisphere. So it would make sense that any of the, any of the trauma therapies really, that imagery is going to be used. So if you use guided imagery, which is just some, it's like guided daydreaming, you know, that, that either you or some, you know, somebody else is deemed helpful for you and they're going to read it into, and you're going to listen to it. Um, over and over again. And then you would do a different one, right? So if you did, you know, you listen to the one you did comfortable place, and now you can bring that up in your imagination. And basically what you're doing is creating new neural nets, right? So when I close my eyes, if I can picture it, right, like a visual picture of it, then I can hear the sounds of it. Some people aren't visual. I am not, right? So I can picture myself sitting in my grandmother's chair. I can feel myself on the chair and I can hear her in the background, but I can't picture it, right? So you don't have, you know, you say only 55% of people are strong wired for you know for visual memory so Delvery says like if, if you you know if you cut them out then you just that's just you know 45 percent of the people that absolutely can do it right they just it's multi-sensory rather than people thinking it of, of just imagery like uh, visual imagery so that's one of them when I started therapy a hundred years ago um, yoga was probably one of the most and and I lucked out I have to tell you almost every everything that I did I lucked out with teachers and just dumb luck nobody said this is this is where you want to be but I went to I was at the YMCA community arts center wherever I happened to end up it was like oh this you know the teacher the yoga teacher was excellent and seemed to be trauma informed even though that was never mentioned you know and what I would say about that if you're going somewhere where somebody's putting their hands on you Right. You want to really know that you have to keep reminding yourself this is an elective procedure. You are choosing to do this. So when you go to a, a yoga place or you go to a massage place, you make sure that you can say no. And if you can't, you need to practice. Right. You need to practice saying that's like, yeah, I need to stop or I have all my clients do. They just thought it was a good idea is say, OK, I need you to stop. And just see that they will stop. That is a corrective experience, right? But it's also fodder for therapy when you can't do it, right? Of why can't you do it? What came up? You know, well, I know what came up. It's a conditioned response. It's a freeze response that doesn't allow you to, you know, doesn't allow you to make any vocal sounds, right? It doesn't allow you to, you know, to say this is not okay, right? But then, like, again, what I'm saying, both of those things provide you information, Right. Either you were able to do it and you have a corrective where somebody, you know, where, where you instructed somebody to stop, you have a boundary and you want them to stop and they did. Or now you have some information about yourself that you need to, you know, you need to either do some writing about some drawing, some right hemisphere stuff. Um, in, in yoga, the reason it's such a, it's, it's such a good therapy for a lot of people and it's not for everybody. I've heard a lot of, I've, I've heard people say that yoga wasn't for them and that's absolute, that's absolutely right. Right. I mean, it's not for them if it's not for them, but it was for me. And and I thought it was um, probably one of the best things that I ever did because the embodied experience was one of not having a body, but living in a body, <laughs> like being, you know, like, a, like a, you know, having a, a soul, having an embodied experience. And that really was what it was like for me. And I, I didn't live in my body, you know, for the first 20 years of my life. But, you know, becoming embodied really gives you information. You know, people say that, oh, I don't want to have these emotions. Emotions are weak. Emotions are information, right? I mean, body sensations are information. Emotions are information. The thing is, when they come up, are they for now? And that's the question that, every, that anybody that has any childhood, any childhood 
adversity should ask, is this anger for now? Because something may have just triggered me and I have to deal with that in the present. But I have all this energy that is all this rage from, you know, years and years of being um, helpless in childhood. So I have to ask myself, is this for now? And if it's not, I have to be able to calm myself down and deal with, you know, the current situation or say, I'll deal with this at another time. Um, so I would start with something that addresses the body in a way that is an embodied experience of moving your body, Tai Chi, Qigong, any of those are very gentle and there's not a lot of, you know, not a lot of people can't do them. But again, you have to find what what works for you, right? Because all of them are individual. Um, when I say when I say yoga, people go, oh, I should I should like yoga. You shouldn't like anything, you know, what what you do, what what's helpful for you. Some of it is, though, you know, I don't like it because I'm starting to feel. And, you know, that thawing out can be scary for people, but it's also should be expected, right? And there should be, you know, the what's missing usually in, in the population with childhood sexual abuse is self-compassion, right? So the self-compassion and being able to, you know, make mistakes or say, I did this, well, I did I did this wrong. I'm not wrong. I did this wrong. You know, mm-hmm. those kind of things. Self-compassion um, makes really all the difference, you know, and I think what you and I had a little conversation a little bit of talking about psychedelics, right? Um, psychedelics aren't for everybody as nothing is for everybody. But psychedelics, MDMA has a really good quality. They're using it with people with um, complex PTSD. It's still in the research phase. But what it does is lower defensiveness and increase empathy, including empathy for self. And that's one of those things that when you have complex PTSD, right, if you have developmental trauma, right, or if you've had months to years of trauma in your adulthood, if you have that, th- th- those are the tough ones. To, to lower defensiveness is really hard because, you know, you have a certain, you have a, we're beings just fighting for survival, right? It's like defending your life all the time. You know? So I think that if, if there's a, rec- at least there's a recognition of this is difficult and I'm doing it. How does that help? Sorry, just to jump in there. How does the psychedelic work to... Well, it's MDMA is the psychedelic. That's what I just want to say. It's Molly or uh, ecstasy, whichever. We're not calling them those (laughs) when we're doing research on them as medicines, right? Because they are profound medication. How does it do it? well, what it does is it, it produces a few things, right? So dopamine is one of them, but oxytocin is the one that it, it we produce oxy, our own oxytocin and oxytocin is that bonding chemical, right? So MDMA brings out oxytocin and that bonding chemical brings down defensiveness and allows us, they say it's very heart, consistently heart opening and throat opening. And I know a lot of people aren't, um, you know, it's like a little too woo-woo. It was always too woo-woo for me too. But the chakras, your heart chakra, your heart chakra and your throat chakra are about relating to one another, right? When we talk about the other psychedelics, like if like psilocybin, that it's in magic mushrooms, they're really talking more about the crown chakra where it's your place in the universe. So MDMA is really the one that is, I say, heart opening. So I'm not saying everybody should go out and do it because again, nothing's for everybody and there's still, it's still in research phase, but the research, I mean, right now what we have, the research is going to blow people away. I mean, 67% of the people in phase three no longer meet criteria for PTSD. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's astounding. I so, mean, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So again, given that that kind of my understanding, limited understanding is that it really goes into brain chemistry and affects brain chemistry. How do we balance 
that because it seems like we should have a bit of a balanced toolkit in terms of, okay, here's my box or my drawer in the box that deals with brain chemistry. Here's the drawer in my box that deals with body and somatic experiences to reconnect with, you know, the body we've disassociated with. You know, here's the mindfulness and guided imagery visualization that taps into, as you said, that creative aspect, but also gives that kind of stabilizing, peaceful place. And then there's the drawer of, well, this is the immediate something that will give me an immediate good sense of things. And here's my drawer that has some things that I just have to keep doing time and time and time again, and that will build up my resilience. For example, my understanding, if you could talk to us more about the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a good complement to some of that body work because it still taps into what are the things that we're telling ourselves that keep sabotaging us all the time, that we have to keep practicing every day. So we change the messages we're giving ourselves. So can you talk a little bit about that box in the drawers and how you suggest we construct that for ourselves? Well, I tell you, I do it as a therapist. I mean, the setup is really, that's what you're dealing with in the first part of therapy is what are the tools that work for this person, right? So you have to try a whole bunch of them, right? And and which ones fit for that person, then you have, that's where you get your tools. That's where you get your tools. Like I say, I mean, I get, I wasn't apologizing for putting, you know, a lot of them in my book, but everybody's not going to make use of every one of them. So if you're saying CBT, CBT, if you're a therapist who doesn't know CBT, you're not really a therapist, right? But CBT is inadequate for trauma. Cognitive behavioral therapy basically is saying your thoughts affect your emotions and they affect your actions. Okay, we know that. The problem with trauma is that part of the brain goes offline when we're triggered. So it doesn't help. CBT is is of no help. You have to be able to regulate your affect and arousal levels to bring the thinking part of the brain back online. We have to be able to regulate our own physiology. We have to be able to regulate our own emotions. And, you know, then CBT becomes possible. Mm. It's not possible until we until we can bring that part back online. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but I do have a question. So, mm-hmm. many of us will get triggered in what are seemingly insignificant situations, and we can feel that trigger starting to go off. And we can be telling ourselves, "Okay, this is the past. It's not the present," and all the things that we tell ourselves. But the question becomes, especially with what you were just talking about, how do we activate that? more visceral, if you will, part of ourselves that will enable us to respond differently? And then how do we practice that? Because I think that's what eludes us so much. Well, I think it's the one that we were talking about earlier. So there's, I have a few of them, like there's a neurovascular hold where you put your right hand over your forehead, right? What is that going to do? Well, it's going to bring blood back to the prefrontal cortex so you can think again. We all have a memory, right? I'm holding the the back of my head, right? Above, just above, um, just above that notch. So I have my hand there and I need you to take a deep breath in through your nose. You bring your chin towards the ceiling and then through pursed lips, you extend the exhalation and bring your, your chin to your chest. I usually do like three of those. And the idea of that is to get the body to, to, to stop reacting as if right now it's in danger right? Peter Levine, he's the developer of somatic experiencing, and he talks a a lot about 
getting the nervous system in, in, in the right time and place, right? Because the nervous system is responding to something that happened, say I'm 56, when I was six years old, right? So that's 50 years ago. So my body's responding to something that is not happening, right? It's out of time and place. So the only reason, the only way that I can change that is to get my body in the here and now. Now, a lot of people with trauma do, do not want to hear about this because it means I have to be embodied, Right. And then what do we do? Well, we cut off from here to here. Right. This body just became a transport object to bring my head to places. Right. That's what it became. Um, I think that we really have to rethink it and think about these things as, you know, having an embodied experience that is not that is not right for what, you know, for this 56 year old person, I am not being threatened, you know, even though I, my body's starting to react as if. So as soon as I have to keep noticing, what is the trigger? How do I sense when I've been triggered? And like, it, it'll take a bit like, for people to go back, like, okay, I didn't know until after the fact, right? And then you start paying attention. Well, what was it that triggered me? So you fi figure out what your triggers are. And then you're able to bring yourself, you know, to get almost to the place where you kind of flip your lid and then you, you start you know you start extending the exhalation what does that do well it brings on the parasympathetic nervous system well what does that mean well it means that you can't have you know your sympathetic nervous system increases your heart rate increases your blood pressure gets you ready to fight gets you ready to run whatever it is you have to do right if you're under threat well you go well guess what i'm not under threat so what do i have to do i have to get my body back in i have to get my body back into a place of calm and homeostasis so i can respond in the present to what's happening right now. That doesn't mean I don't have to deal with my past. I absolutely have to deal with my past. Otherwise, it continues to play itself out in the body, right? That's 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 the way trauma works, right? It's like it's stored unprocessed in the right hemisphere. So all of the resources that we have, which is what does this mean to my past and what does this mean to my future, that 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 trauma memory is hasn't hasn't been brought to the left hemisphere yet right meaning it's like it has to come up to the prefrontal cortex so you can say, think about it right usually what happens the memory comes up memory networks up this part goes offline and you're just re-traumatized meaning that memory network gets uh, seared deeper into the memory parts of the brain right it just makes it easier to be triggered so if you can interrupt that enough times right? And that takes time, right? Whether you do a neurovascular hold or whether you do EFT is a motion freedom technique, but it's just, it's a meridian tapping technique. And it's it's one of my favorites, but the fact of the matter is people are not going to be tapping on their face and, you know, all these points, you know, on public transportation or whatever it is. So you have to figure out ways to do it. And I mean, I learned a lot from my professors, but everything from my clients, you know, people teach me, okay, so here's the point, you know, so you're doing, you know, you learn to do it, um, surreptitiously, like you take the breath in and you just think the thought, like, even though my body's scared, I'm okay. Even though my body's scared, I'm okay. Body's scared, I'm okay. And I'm, and I'm just like touching these points that are, you know, in Chinese, in traditional Chinese medicine, these are high energy points. And what they do is interrupt, right? It's like a dual awareness. Even though my body's telling me I'm in danger, I can look around and see that I am not in danger right now. Like I'm sitting here with you, you know, I'm having this conversation with this beautiful fake background. But what you're saying is, I think, so powerful because it's the reverse of, I think, how many of us have come to deal with our trauma or keeping it in its place or managing it in some way, which is in our heads. You know, we, we process it in our heads. We try and shift it in our heads. And when that gets too much, maybe we'll then just go for the tequila or the vodka or whatever it was that just makes the head feel more settled and not as though it's 
overloading, which is a whole other issue. And so this is really saying, how do we tap into, if you will, the body to interrupt, to circuit break the responses of the body because there's more signals going from the body to the brain than there are the brain to the body, right? And and there's a lot of research and, and knowledge around that. But now it's catching up with the practices, as you said. How, when we have been so disassociated with our body, do we start to feel comfortable? And e- EFT, as you said, the tapping on the different meridians is something that we can do in the moment that can really shift and interrupt that pattern to the brain, right? Oh, absolutely. And there's like these different, you know, you're holding different points like this. This is a containment piece, you know, to do do these ones, Um, like holding one hand over your forehead, one hand over your sternum and your heart, and then keep one over your heart and bring one below your navel. And you're doing just... um, I don't want to say you do deep breaths all the time because you don't. People start to get, get tingly because they're hyperventilating. But what you do is you, you take a, a breath in and then you extend the exhalation at least twice as long. Because if you can get it, if you get a hold of your exhalation, you've gotten a hold of your nervous system, mm-hmm. your autonomic nervous system. You're in control of it, right? So just extending the exhalation and practicing doing that, when you start to feel triggered, that's what you do. And you keep your, you know, it takes a bit, it takes a while. Don't think it's not like, oh, I did it once now. You know, I did this tap technique up cured. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you get enough experiences, you get an accumulation of experiences where, oh, okay, all right, this, and then, you know, like the trigger, uh, trigger to calm gets shorter and shorter and shorter, you know, the time between trigger and calm, you're really able to calm your, calm your physiology. And that doesn't, work by thinking it. <laughs> you know, you can't think yourself into the, the, the thinking part of the brain has really nothing to do with the autonomic nervous system, which is, you know, parasympathetic, which is, you know, rest, digest, or, you know, tend, befriend. And then you have a sympathetic nervous system that's all about arousal. And it's all about fight, flight, or, you know, a fight, flight on hold, like either, like those things. So, I mean, if you had trauma early and often, you have a lot of dissociation, right? That's, 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 I mean, it's, we all come by it honestly. You have a lot of dissociation. So what do you have to do is you have to start where you are. And if that's where I am, that I dissociate all the time, I really have to do um, a little bit of top-down regulating and say, I really need to learn some skills to stay present and really remind myself that I'm not in danger now. If I am in danger, you have to tell the truth. If you're in danger, you, don't, you do not want to feel relaxed, right? But if you're not in danger and you want to you know, get, you know, Use your big brain to say, I'm not in danger right now. So I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to work on extending my exhalation. I'm going to work on um, these, these, these responses that are hardwired now. Right. I say the dissociation is part of it. Like people, a lot of people go, Oh, I'm triggered. I'm in this uh, heightened arousal. But there's plenty of people that, you know, were harmed early and often that as soon as their heart rate starts to go up, it immediately decelerates and they're gone, dissociated, gone. Um, so you have to be able to say, Okay, well, what can I do about that? Well, I can look around and I can, you know, I can count how many green things do I see? I can count at what, you know, what do I hear? You know, three sounds that I hear. Can I feel my feet on the floor? Do I feel my butt in this chair? You know, can you can do a little tapping on any parts of your body to get yourself, you know, to keep yourself embodied and present. And it's really, it's a hard sell for people who have had a lot of early and often trauma because being embodied never was a good thing. People, you know, with, I'm, I can tell you for myself, it was, this body was not, I mean, this, I, I, it was more of, well, it's to blame. 
it's to blame, right? Well, it isn't to blame. The perpetrator was to blame. And but and and if I'm going to go back further, I'm not forgiving anybody on your on air right now. I'm just saying, but I'm going to go back further. Hurt people, hurt people, right? So you know that the idea of okay, can can I forgive? Isn't the question? It's can I control my nervous system so I can make decisions today based on information that I have today, not based on information from when I was six years old or three years old. Right. And those are things those are things that you have to decide to do. Right. You have to decide to say, okay, I'm gonna um stop dissociating as much as I do because some of it's habitual, right? I mean, but some of it is volitional. And you know, some people say it's it's nicer just to go away. Well, when you go away, you're getting closer to your trauma, just so people know. You know, it's like the brain is always trying to heal, right? We have this like a healing intelligence that, you know, when we go to sleep. May dream in metaphor, maybe symbolism, it may be the actual event, you know, but as the same thing happens, you get to the point of overwhelm and you wake up, <gasps> you know, wake up like that, right? Because you don't have the skills yet to move through it. Yeah. And on that point, you know, again, we can tell ourselves mentally a lot that will make a difference over time. But again, this uh, work of reconnecting and anticipating what's happening when our body responds is a whole different thing because as soon as our body starts responding to a stimuli, often we'll cut it off because in the past, as you said, it's been dangerous and we haven't trusted ourselves to go there and kind of to lean into it and to explore it because it hasn't been a safe place and we haven't been able to, as children, um, safely go there. So, now, fast forward, we might be 40, 50, however old, and we've still got this body that keeps tipping us into a bad place. So is this a practice that we can start at any time? And how long should people expect to have to do these practices before it becomes kind of a, a less dramatic bodily reaction to some of the things that we're feeling or does it just keep happening and we just have to be better and better at anticipating it and having those tools whether it's tapping EFT tapping or guided imagery and those other practices that you mentioned you know the neurovascular hold talk to us about that well I'm going to answer your question but I want to say, first off, we we usually find things that help in the moment, right? But I would like to encourage people to think, is this going to help long term? Because generally, I can tell you as an alcoholic, it doesn't last long term, right? I mean, I, I had to quit drinking when I was 24, right? Somebody, you know, I, I said I had mine and my husband's share already. So I had to stop at that point, right? But we do things in the, in these United States that are going to take things, you know, take a pill, take this, take a drink, you know, make it go away now. But is it going to work in the long run? The answer is an absolute emphatic no. Right. It's not going to work in the long run. So you have to find things that it's like if you'd say you're a heroin addict. Yeah, nothing's going to be as good as heroin. I got news for you. First, first, when you stop doing heroin, there's going to be other things that people want you to do that don't feel like heroin, period. But you started this with brain chemistry and we are we we are we can change our own brain chemistry without drinking alcohol we can change our own brain chemistry you know um without taking a drug or you know taking a pill we can do it with with uh, you can do it like you can do it 
playing sports. You can do it dancing. You can do it singing with other people. Now, obviously, when I say it just like that, like go, go out and sing in a church choir, you know, it's like, okay, well, a thousand people are already triggered, a million people, right? Go, go sing in a church choir. But singing with other people activates the vagus nerve. And if you can feel safe enough to do that, that's a really, that's that's a, uh, a hack for your nervous system, right? Because if you can do that with other people, you, you activate the vagus nerve. Now you're saying, how long do you have to do it? I don't do guided imagery anymore. I've never, like I, I've done, I did it for years, right? Like, you know, to do it at night and not like all the time. I did it for a long time quickly, right? And now when I go to the dentist, I don't dissociate. I, I mean, I don't like dissociate by accident. I immediately go to my comfortable place and I don't really need anesthesia or anything, right? Like, because I can do that, right? I like kind of self-hypnosis. Are we going to have to do this forever? The answer is no and yes. You're going to have to find regulation skills. We all have to find regulation skills. How do we regulate ourselves without making things worse? So the answer is yes and no. Like yes, you have to, yes, you have to regulate yourself for the rest of your life. So if you you know if you think you can do it with alcohol, you're wrong. Like, period. Okay. If you think you can do it for the rest of your life with alcohol, if you think you can do it with with any of these drugs, you're wrong. Right. You have to be able to produce those chemicals in your own body, and we have the ability to do that we can make oxytocin we can make um, noradrenaline we can make it we can make any of that you know we can make any of the cocktail which is why people do the things they do which is why people cut themselves which is why people burn themselves why people hit themselves you know hit, hit their heads on the wall is because it changes their internal experience all you need to do is find things that don't have high costs right because they all have high costs all the things that i mentioned it right they all they, like you need to find things to regulate yourself that that don't cost you anything like life limb or morality whatever you know whatever it's going whatever it's going to cost you need to find things that will work and they're they're useful until you don't need them anymore but you, that doesn't mean you're not going to have to regulate yourself we all do we have to do it cuz the deal is we need a flexible nervous system so our nervous system can respond to the actual environment environment, not respond to something that happened when we were three or six or 11 years old. You know, we need to have a nervous system that gives us enough adrenaline that we can take a test, um, but no adrenaline when we're sick. We need to have a lot of adrenaline if, you know, like a, a dog's chasing us and it's a big dog, you need a lot of adrenaline. But that's what you need is a flexible nervous system. And trauma, you can bet you can bet, <laughs> bet your ass you don't have one, right? If you're, if you're still traumatized, you do not have a flexible nervous system. And that's what we, that's really what we ought to be working on saying, okay, because that's what I, when I work with the first responders, we talk about it in medical terms, right? Physiology terms, because that's really what that's, you know, wherever people are. And that's the, easiest way to understand it is your fit if you can take control of your parasympathetic nervous system you've controlled the autonomic nervous system which gives you control of how you respond in the present now again yes you're, you're going to have to re regulate yourself but is it always going to be you know what do i do now it's not right it's it becomes just commonplace or you you learn to avoid certain things because it's like oh okay, this always happens why would i do it why would i put myself in that position or yes this is what this is i'm going to breathe i'm going to you know i'm going to extend the exhalation i'm going to remind myself even though my body's scared i'm fine even though my body's scared i'm fine you know maybe i'll be touching some of those points and they're just they're all pretty easy things to do now if you think about going to therapy and you're terrified don't go to therapy yet
I mean, don't go to therapy yet. You know, find somebody that you can talk to, not necessarily about the abuse, but about the feelings around it, you know, mm-hmm. or about, um, you know, something in the present that's a little bit difficult to say. And that's really, that's that's the best advice I can give anybody because therapists aren't a dime a dozen, you know, and they're not all as, they're not all as skilled as we could be. And, you know, we started talking about alcohol a little bit and you mentioned you'd given up alcohol some time ago. I think it's pretty um, acknowledged that a lot of people are drinking a lot more and COVID did nothing to help that. You know, oh, no, COVID exacerbated everything. You and I talked about that earlier, just right. about, you know, when, when they took away all of our people and all of our resources, whether it be going to the gym or going to, a med- you know, meditation or, um, I don't know, yoga, whatever, or the grocery store, or whatever, going, seeing people, this lady gives me my coffee, you know, like seeing all that when they take all of that away and you have a president at the time, was it 17 credible sexual assault? allegations. There's one in three of us who sat here and felt exactly like we did in childhood. And so when we're isolated and when we're at home and when alcohol is like the easy fix to go to, that became for many of us a habit, a worse habit. If it was a habit before, it became a worse habit during COVID. But we know that alcohol messes with our brains and our bodies so much and is such a saboteur of this process that you're talking about in terms of building up your resources that over time can shift you um, without having a chemical dependency to go to. Talk to us a bit about um, alcohol and is this something that, you know, if people are really serious, do we need to put away the alcohol for even say just start with 30 days and try this. How much does alcohol interfere with this process of of, um, making the shifts that will help us long term? Well, I would say I'm going to address both the alcohol and benzos because I think benzos are, benzos are a little bit worse, but not much. Um, and when I'm talking about like Xanax, Ativan, uh, Clonopin, those sort of things, what people don't get about those is they are contraindicated for PTSD. I mean, it is, there's meta-analysis after meta-analysis that says not only are they contraindicated, but listen, listen closely. You cannot do memory reconsolidation when you are taking a benzo. That's what it does. That's its job. Alcohol is an anesthetic. Um, Okay. We get it, right? You're euphoric for the first drink, for the first drink, maybe the first three, right? And then it becomes, then you're anesthetized, right? So I don't know how, I don't know, I don't want to tell anybody they have to quit drinking because nobody has to do anything. People are adults, they can do what they want to do. Um, I, but, but if you want to ask my, my opinion is there's no way that I could have gotten better if I kept drinking, right? I could only get worse. I mean, I have, I come from two alcoholic parents and, you know, three out of four of the kids are alcoholic and I'm the only one sober, right? So I, I see what it looks like. You know, I see what it looks like if I didn't quit drinking, you know, and basically it, it is easy. It's it's easier, but it's easier in the moment. And that's kind of the grown up thing where we have to think about it, not in terms of they're not letting me do this or somebody wants me to quit drinking. It's is this is this um, going to be good for me long term is the question. You know, that's the way I asked it. It's really the way I asked it. I mean, to be anesthetized um, when when you're 
having surgery makes sense. To be anesthetized when they locked us in and gave us no end date, right? That made sense. I don't, I'm not going to say it didn't, right? I mean, that's that makes sense. It's like, okay, you have, you're experiencing this powerlessness because you don't have any say of whether you get to go out. You don't have it, you know, you didn't, you didn't really have any, <laughs> you didn't have any voice like you didn't when you were a child, right? So I, you know what? I have, I give, I give everybody a general pass for all of the pandemic. And I'd like to say that people really should look at it as, well, I got through that. You know, I got mm-hmm. through that. And and what, you know, what did I miss the most when I was in it? And then really make use of that again, right? And and as you said, like the whole social distancing and ha- recapturing that seems to be a, a huge driver to stabilizing ourselves amidst our resources. all of this. Right. Yeah, we because, could give us back our resources. Right. If we try to do this alone, if it seems to me that, you know, we can only go so far that finding our people, finding our tribe, whether it's online communities or live groups or somehow staying connected to people who you feel like they understand your experience, that you're understood, that you have a sense of belonging just for who you are versus trying to fit into groups that just make you feel more isolated, even though you're with people. That would seem to be something that even though you know, many of us might have got comfortable with having a bit more distance finding those purposeful connections couldn't be more important uh, on this journey. I, I think that's right. And, you know, they say with exercise, you know, to have a buddy with you, have somebody that's, you know, have somebody that you're accountable to. I mean, I have a, I have a dog here that I have to take for a walk every morning, right? You know, not because she needs to take a walk. I make her go, <laughs> right? And it's just like to, to be outside, to be connected to nature. It's really beautiful, you know, like, and, and I, I have to say there were many, many years that I couldn't appreciate any of it, you know, because I was cut off from my body. So when you're cut off from your body, all emotions have a locus in the body. And if, you, you know, and if they're tamped down and cut off, you know, we, we, we really only are moved. That's why it's called emotion. We're only moved by these, that's the feelings. That's why we live. It's not about thought, you know, it's about, okay, mm. well, this makes me feel like I want to be with this person. I want to help this person. I want to do this. I want this person to, you know, come with me to do this. Like, I think those are the things that those are, they're the basics. And I don't want to, like, I don't think you need an expert to tell you, you know, when, when you have somebody you love, try to see them, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Try to, try to, and I'm not talking, I'm not talking about triggered people. I'm saying people, you know, you, you want to, you want to be around, you feel good when you're around them, be around them, you know, and if you can't be around them in person, do this, you know, be, be online, because I don't think it's been horrible online. I never thought that that would be that you could do therapeutic presence stuff like that. But it's absolutely, you know, the mother of you know necessities, the mother of invention, right? Yeah, so we yeah. we just had to do it. Yeah. Linda, any final thoughts for people as we wrap up? Well, there I will say there's tons. Of, there are are tons of resources, but I would say. Make use of the resources, but what you said, Kathy, about having groups, you know, if, if they're in-person groups, they don't have to be professionally led. It might not be an awful idea to, you know, like to, to have, um, like a peer, a, a peer led group. Or, I mean, I, I think I've been taught, I do a lot of consultation groups for therapists and the consultation groups, we talk about that, you know, we, sh- there should be open groups that people could just drop into just for the pandemic itself, you know, of, you know, being overwhelmed, um, being around people that, that allow us to say what's true for us. That's, I mean, I think that's essential. And if people who, who have had um, childhood sexual abuse, 
if, if that's your experience, um, I first would say, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry it happened to me too, right? But I mean, I'm sorry that that happened. And it doesn't really have to be the only thing that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, you know, it really doesn't. It there You were asking, do you always have to do this? The answer is no. Therapy sucks, just so everybody can know that. Therapy sucks. There are moments of mutuality and moments of awe in therapy. And there's a lot of drudgery and a lot of learning and doing things that, you know, we've heard for years we ought do, you know, and it's like, but now, you know, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, just maybe trying some of those and see if they help. And if they don't help, by by no means keep doing them. And if they do help, use them. That's really, I mean, it's there's nothing really you know, philosophical that I have to say. There's a, there's a lot of resources. People are the main resource. You have to find some people that you have to find some people that see you. Mm. And that's that would be that would be my suggestion. Mm. And um, again, of course, there's your workbook, which I can't emphasize enough to people to to grab that. And I'll put the information on the website, the podcast website, at 101 Trauma-Informed Interventions. And just by the name, there's got to be at least one in there that will, will <laughs> help. It's not just a, a marketing ploy. <laughs> no, there really is. And again, not to get overwhelmed, but perhaps it's one of those things that people just open the book at a page and see what's there. You know, and start there and just do one thing. And yeah. And do- if, if you open the page to non-dominant hand and you don't like it, go to another page. You know, if this doesn't work, use something else. And I do want to mention that Babette Rothschild just put out um, another workbook. Hers is written for people, you know, if you're a client or a clinician or just a, just a human like us. It's for anybody. So I'll, I'll get you that name too. I'll send you that. Great. I love her work. So I would love to share that with everyone. Linda, thank you so much for joining everyone today and all you've shared. And I'm sure we're going to have more conversations because there's just so much to to go into. And I can't thank you enough. Oh, thanks for having me. I do appreciate it. To receive notifications of the podcast, subscribe or follow the podcast today and visit overcomingchildsexualabuse.com for more about this and upcoming podcasts. Remember, to get help for anything you're going through, reach out to a qualified professional. You can search the internet, call 24-7 hotlines, including the National Child Abuse Hotline, or speak to your doctor for resources. In case of a mental health emergency, please don't hesitate to call 911.